Welcome to Day Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a chance for authors to connect with readers after their book tours have been canceled due to the coronavirus. There's a lot of serious stuff going on in the world, but I hope this is a place where you can find new books and new authors to really enjoy during the time you might be self-isolated or social distancing. Any author, a debut author, or a seasoned veteran is welcome to join me on this digital book tour to read from their newest book and answer a short Q&A. That way, readers can really get to know the author and the ideas behind their book. Today's guest is Hadley Moore, whose debut short story collection, Not Dead Yet and Other Stories, came out last September via Autumn House Press. It was also longlisted for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Short Story Collection. There's a lot of existential dread in this one, which is either the perfect time to read it or something you should hold off on. But I honestly think you should read it right now. Hey, Hadley. How's it going? Um, it's all right. I live in Michigan. It snowed last night, so I'm looking at my at my backyard. There's a ton of snow out, and we have a stay-at-home order starting at midnight today. Uh, but other than that, <laughs> it's okay. I, I hear you. I um, just moved to Denver, well, about three months ago from Phoenix, and it snowed over the weekend, and I feel like the snow helps with the, like why I'm inside. It gives me like a reason to yeah. think the world's kind of okay right now. Yeah, truly. Yeah, but it's it's been crazy all around. Um, so I think writers, because I'm reading so much more now, I'm trying not to be on Netflix, so I'm glad there's so many books out there in the world. Yeah, that's good. That's um, good. Your short story collection came out late last year uh, from Autumn House Press. It's called Not Dead Yet. Uh, it's short stories. Mm-hmm. Tell readers a little bit about what the collection is about as a whole? Well, um, I wrote stories off and on for a long time, um, over a period of about 10 years. Um, And during that time, I also wrote and revised a novel several times and started another unrelated collection. And so um, the, the collection Not Dead Yet is nine stories and as i was writing them they felt like nine discrete projects they felt like one-offs and so it was not until oh i don't know maybe a year before i started submitting the collection as a collection that i it occurred to me that i had an actual book that hung together um and that i think doesn't always happen when you're just writing story after story with periods of time between them and other projects going on. But I noticed that there was a theme of, uh, well, loss. Um, Some of it is death, as in the title, much of it is. Um, There are quite a lot of elderly protagonists, which again, I I was not um, planning. but I, and then there's other kinds of loss, loss of relationships and youth um, and hope and um, health, things like that. Um, and so I think <laughs> one of the themes is my existential threat, I have to admit. Um, but it was, it was kind of a nice surprise to, to see that the work, this work I'd been doing was coalescing. 
I understand the existential dread. I feel like I, I'm drawn to a lot of books that make me question a lot of things, but make me feel weirdly comfortable in the protagonist's existential dread that they present to us. Yeah. And I like, I like books and I think I do this in my own work that, that grapple with difficult subjects. Um, I feel, you know, like, as you said, very uh, sort of weirdly comforted by that um, to look at something squarely that is difficult rather than to turn away and to pretend it's not there, um, which is, you know, uh, timely for the situation we're into. Um, although sometimes I do have to turn away from from the news. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I, I definitely understand avoiding the news as much as possible right now because it just changes every hour so now i've I, yeah i've put in a policy where i get like one hour at night to catch up and then that's really it twitter's for like yeah, memes good. and whatnot now um yeah. so your collection not dead yet which was long listed for the 2020 uh pen robert bingham debut short story yeah. collection which i will talk about in a little bit but i'm excited to hear you read f from your collection what story are you going to read from today so I'm going to read a short version of the title story, Not Dead Yet. And this will bring up some of the things that I just um, spoke about being uh, kind of through lines of the entire collection. So, okay, Not Dead Yet. It had been 10 years of coincidences, and now here was the worst. Dean's second wife had the same kind of cancer his first wife had died from. It was a very common cancer, but still. They had met in a support group, two surviving black spouses of white spouses dead from cancer. Dean tried to play down the coincidence of the group. 70% of the reason anyone was there was to meet someone new. They also both had a shellfish allergy. They had read Anna Karenina and War and Peace all the way through. Their hair, pre-graying, had been reddish. They each had two grown daughters. We both wear glasses, Dean would interrupt, when this tiresome listing got started, usually by one of the daughters. We both like peanut butter. We each have two legs. Our thumbs are opposable. Who cares? Not everything is interesting. His first wife's name was Marie, and a stranger at a party once said to him, Oh, I have a friend named Mary. Yes, he'd responded. Everyone does. He didn't say, her name is Marie. If he had a life's motto, this would be it. Not everything is interesting. But she wasn't dead yet. His second wife, Lorraine. Both his wives had French first names, a coincidence no one had remarked upon. Barring a joint accident, either Dean or Lorraine would have to bury two spouses. They had always acknowledged this. He should be glad to spare her. The doctor had said two years at most, but they all knew that didn't mean 24 good months. It might mean a few normal-seeming months. Through Christmas, it was now August, then a tumbling decline, then some bad, terrifying months. Maybe he'd have a massive heart attack in the meantime. This was a tremendously selfish but tantalizing wish. In some ways, I feel lucky, Lorraine said to him one night in bed. He had started to drift. They'd had gentle, elderly sex. One of these times would be the last, 
and he had settled into sleep with his hand on her thigh. He was quiet a few seconds, rising out of unconsciousness enough to catch the echo of her words. What? He said. I'm the lucky one. You know. Well, he said. Yes. I am glad I can spare you. It was a lie. They both knew it. Of course, she said. And then, if I weren't so selfish, I would put your pillow over your face. Dean waited for her to laugh. When she didn't, he said, maybe I should do it. He heard her inhalation. I mean, what did he mean? He was half asleep. Well, don't do it to me yet, darling. Now she left. He thought he'd meant himself. Maybe I could still spare you, she went on. If you don't like the pillow, perhaps you can hope for a massive heart attack, he thought. Hemorrhage, she said. She laughed again. He felt her leg under his hand, then felt it slide away as she turned from her back to her side, toward him. She laid her palm on his sternum. But I'm not dead yet. We both like peanut butter. We both wear glasses. We've both read Tolstoy. Who cares? But how could he not wish for more of all of it? We're both still alive. We both choose to go first. I hate this, he said. Me too. What is the point? No point. Wrong question. What is the question? Wordplay now. Sleepy banter. Eh, no question. No answer. Just what? Just what? He wanted to know. Life. Nothing. Life, he repeated. Nothing. He tried it with different punctuation. Life. Colon. Nothing. Too shrill and obvious. He put his hand over hers. If he could, if he believed it, he would tell her there was nothing to fear. But they both had too much terrible knowledge for that. So they held hands and waited for sleep. And tomorrow they would wake up. Still two complex organisms. Big animals with two big brains. Aware of the pointlessness of everything but willing, or at least not yet unwilling, to attend to it all anyway. Thank you so much for reading that. I, as I was yeah. listening to you, you know, obviously there's a lot of talk of death and that's what it surrounds. Um, and I was thinking something I talked with authors a lot is about like what writing does for the writer. What, because this has a lot to do with your existential dread, this collection and mm-hmm. that, that seeps into it. Does it help or hurt that dread when you write? It really helps. And I think, I think it has so much to do with the fact that, I'm just by writing, by writing fiction in particular, I'm just acknowledging that this is the way my brain works. Um, and that writing is uh, one of the most profound ways for me to just be myself. Um, so I don't write um, autobiographically in the sense that uh, any of the things that I'm depicting, you know, in scene and dialogue have happened to me, but I think that, um, it's probably pretty true that a lot of the thoughts and emotions that my characters have, who are very different. This is an older black man who is the protagonist. I am a younger white woman who are different from me, but we're having 
similar human experiences. So, yeah. Yeah, I find it, I, I when I lived in Phoenix, I moderated a book club and my co-moderator, her mother would always read the books we, we selected and she um, was like, hey, does Adam have like an issue? Like what's going on with him? Because we pick like we pick books that like have down notes in them, and I think like I turn to reading as you turn to writing, where it's I'm seeking a connection of feelings I have, but I don't necessarily verbalize with my friends at happy hour or, or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I mean I I think about some of my favorite books that are books about war and other you know other kinds of trauma, and it's because the writer has turned something difficult into something beautiful, has made art out of our human experience, which is necessarily going to involve pain. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the in your intro to the collection that you had a novel that you revised and re-edited and it's not published yet. Is that still something no. you're working on? Yeah, I am. Um, it was, I had been working on it almost right up until I learned that I um, had won the Autumn House Fiction contest the 28 it's the 2018 contest but my book was published in September of 2019 um so at that point I set you know the the revision of the novel aside and I've been doing um you know edits of the of not dead yet and book stuff you know promotion and all of that and also working on my my third project which is another collection Collection. does that i don't want to know what the novel or collection is about but i'm assuming it they also deal with your existential dread and and your in your emotions (laughs) and trying to handle life or what are are they similar in that way yeah i think that's fair to say um the novel is about i'll just say very generally it's, it's about family family trauma and the um the other, the very, very much in progress, other collection, um, all of the stories deal in some way with the assassinations of the 1960s um, in, in various ways. So they're they're uh, linked thematically that okay. way. Yeah, I just wanted yeah. to bring those up before I forgot about them. You mentioned, um, so this story collection won a, the Autumn House uh, Fiction Prize. And I feel yeah. like many aspiring and emerging writers not many some there's a small pocket who don't understand or don't know that these type of prizes exist um how do how did this work for you your path to publication i thought that because i had a a story collection ready first that the um the contest route was the way to go um just because frankly collections are harder to sell than novels um, so I wanted to do it that way. Um, and there are lots of small presses too that have open reading periods. You don't have to, you don't have to go the contest route, but, um, it's submitted for about a year and a half. And I was careful and suspicious about, um, the collection, the, uh, the contest that I submitted to, um, I wanted to feel good <laughs> about it if, if I, if I won one of them, um, and I did, and Autumn House has been great, really supportive, um, and the editing process was really rigorous, um, and so I'm, I'm glad that I did that. What was that editing process like? Because, like you said, these short stories, they were done, you had them ready. What did that look like for you? Um, it was intense, and I, um, I am glad 
deeper that I, I'm pretty careful about line editing, line editing in my day job. I do a lot of that copy editing, um, kind of closely looking at stuff like that. And so I felt like the book was pretty clean, but, um, in the editing process, which was iterative, I mean, there were several, there were several rounds of it ending, you know, in the later, uh, the later rounds with things like being careful about line breaks and stuff in, in the layout, um, which was new to me. Um, but I felt like in the editing process, especially the early rounds when it was more substantive, that I was really at that point drawing the stories even even closer together um and it it sounds it sounds sort of counterintuitive because of course this is my work i'm very familiar with it but when when people when my you know my editor in particular but other readers would point out yeah there you really do have a lot of elderly protagonists that was a little bit stunning to me like clearly there's something going on here like that 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 would be true or other other links between the stories that um that my editor pointed out that i that i had not known and there was there was one um in particular an ending an ending of the story that he pointed out just didn't really work and um i had kind of always known that but didn't know how to hadn't known how to fix it myself up until that point and so i was kind of telling myself that it was okay when it really wasn't and so i was glad that i had a chance to to finally fix that with short story collections i'm because it's it's different in the novel in the sense that you could play with how readers discover these stories because it's not a chronological exploration or what have yeah. you um i also am really interested in just like the title the title story yeah was not dead yet always something you wanted the title story to be no it was the last story that i drafted and it's also the shortest one in the collection. And um, so that was story number nine. So I had these eight stories for a long while that I was kind of playing around with. And I, it just didn't quite feel finished to me. And I also didn't feel like there was a good title for the whole book that was presenting itself. The other titles of the stories didn't seem um, that they could encompass um, the whole book. And so when I finally... <laughs> finally had the idea for and wrote this last shortest story that became the title that was kind of when it finally all seemed to fall into place and i think it really does cohesively explain what the themes of all these stories are in one way yeah the stories all feature or a lot of them feature these elderly narrators protagonists what draws yeah. you to writing from those voices? I think probably just because at that point, um, there's a lot of material in a life already. Um, there's, there's one story that's written from the perspective of a child narrator, but that's the only one. And I don't, I, I can't think of another instance when I've written from the, the position of a child. Um, but it's mostly people, at least in middle age and, you know, so many who are elderly, there's just, there's just a lot to, there's a lot to work with and a lot of, a lot of, um, a a lot of loss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The child narrator, what was easy and what was hard for you writing from that perspective? 
Um, the voice came to me um, pretty early on, and I wrote a first draft like pretty quickly, but then I did have to go back and think about the, so the kid is nine and you learn that kind of early on to, or to orient the reader, um, to think about though, there were some instances where the diction seemed a little too old for him and some that seemed a little too young. Um, and so I did have to iron that out and look at it really carefully so that the voice was believable and consistent. Um, and it is a little bit hard to remember in adulthood exactly what it was like to be nine and what you were capable of and what you weren't quite. Yeah. That's what I find really interesting about about voice. Most writers I talk to, is they just say it, it comes to them. It wasn't a, It wasn't like you sat down and wanted to write from a child voice. It just felt right. right when you happened to sit down. Yeah, I think that's true. Then you do have to reverse engineer it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, okay, where did I veer off and what, and, and what sounds true? Mm -hmm. This collection as a whole, it, it was published because it won a fiction prize through Autumn House, and then it was also nominated or longlisted for a fairly big short story yeah. collection award. What... What did that feel like for you? Because I, I know a lot of small presses and writers who are on them, they're often overlooked unjustly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I was I was surprised. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons is that it's a small press. And as much as um, a lot of editors and contests and prizes out there will tell you, I think that it's not necessarily a pure meritocracy and that there are um, things about perhaps, you know, if this person had a big agent or a big publicist or a big press or, you know, somebody just some luck that, that they had that someone important took some interest, um, but that will be influencing in some way. Um, and so I was pretty stunned to see it kind of, you know, my little book from this little press, I mean, a micro press just kind of rise, you know, rise up through all of that. I, yeah, I was surprised, but it felt great. I, th I think readers should definitely, and I, I'm part of this, I, I'm giving myself advice to seek out these small, smaller presses, these indie presses. And then, you know, there's just, there's just much luck involved and I remind myself of this too when I, anytime I have a you know a bit of success that there was probably all kinds of really um worthy work you know that also deserved it so. I want to wrap up with asking what you're currently reading or you're eager to read during our self-distancing and this quarantine we find ourselves under yeah well, I've been, I have been reading a lot of other small press books, a lot of um, the releases that came out with me at, at Autumn House um, last fall. And then I want to give a shout out to a, a couple of my MFA friends because we were all going to do a reading together um, next month. But that has been canceled, of course. So um, 
my friend Jennifer Wisner Kelly had her story collection Stone Skimmers um, come out last fall, as well as my friend um, Lisa Van Orman Hadley in her book Irreversible Things out last fall. And those are both really great um, indie press story collections, also contest winners, and really different from each other. Um, and so that I think that kind of shows an interesting range of what story collections can be like. I'm also reading, I'm a little bit late to this, but I'm reading um, Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, which is really nice and creepy. Um, you know, I like that kind of thing. Um, and I can't stop right now thinking about Pale Horse, Pale Rider, classic novella. But Catherine Ann Porter, because it's set in the middle of the um, flu epidemic in 1918. So I, I don't know if people really want to go back and read that. <laughs> right now but I'm, I'm thinking about that one a lot yeah that is something i find interesting as i'm talking to a lot of friends it's what we're currently reading and some of us like i said i seek out bummer jams i guess and uh, <laughs> other people really want like laugh out loud comedies or action-packed thrillers right now in this time yeah and uh that's why i'm always interested to hear what people are reading i think maybe i will have to go back and read that novella to yeah I think I can learn a lot it's from it. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> so read it for that reason. Read it, read it because it's beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Hadley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really yeah, appreciate it. I'm, I'm so glad that you're getting the recognition you're getting for this collection because, like I said, it, it was beautiful and it touched me in a lot of ways that I'm, I'm excited to share this book with more people. Okay, great. I appreciate it a lot, Adam. Thank you. Thank you again so much to Hadley Moore for reading from her debut short story collection, Not Dead Yet. You can find out more information about Hadley at HadleyMoore.net or on Twitter, she's at HadleyMoore10. That's a one zero. Please support any authors, debut or not. Please support independent bookstores. They all need you more now than ever. Please vote in the primaries if you haven't voted yet in your state. And then please, 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 please vote in November. You can follow me at DayBeautiful at any of the social medias. And the website is DayBeautiful.net. We have a new podcast um, that was regularly scheduled before this digital book tour with Alexandra Chang coming out on March 31st. Please subscribe and you'll be able to find that. Have a good one, y'all.